Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Tim, thanks for taking some time to join me. Yeah, great to be here, Owen. Thanks for inviting me. Coming all the way across town to the <laughs> office and up to level four, it's, it's always a pleasure to chat in person. You've obviously got a very rich history in investing markets. We talked about Melbourne just off air a minute ago and how a lot of your clients and customers are from Melbourne, but obviously across Australia as well. I'm curious though, if we go back and just to set the scene for listeners, how did your kind of inclination and your curiosity for finance start? Like where did that begin? Yeah, great question. And um, thanks for asking me because it's always an absolute pleasure to obviously delve back into history and the grassroots of where we came from. But my father, Dr. Merv Lincoln, he completed his PhD at Melbourne University in the Economics and Finance Faculty back in 1982. And that PhD or his thesis was titled The Usefulness of Accounting Ratios to Describe the Insolvency Risk of Companies. Now, that particular piece of work formed the basis of credit risk analysis through the 80s and dated lecture theoretically. His methodology and the formula from his thesis to corporate Australia, in particular credit departments and, and lending institutions. During that time, though, Dab had, was a self-directed investor too, and he was using his methodology to select stocks to manage his portfolio, in particular using accounting ratios to identify stocks that were at high risk of failure, corporate failure or insolvency, and those that weren't because they had strong balance sheets, they had good strong uh, levels of profitability, history of profitability, and strong cash flow. So he was selecting those stocks to manage his own portfolio. I came on the scenes in the early 90s because I had a strong computer background and Dad passed his PhD across the table to me um, when I returned from contracting overseas and said, Tim, do you want to have a crack at actually computerising the PhD and also then potentially commercialising it because he saw computers as being a way to deliver in that early stage of, of technology evolution his a very manual lecturing process. So that was the idea at the time. So we went ahead and started to computerise it at the same time. Well, we were really developing a credit risk tool. But at the same time, we were identifying this high correlation that existed between the health of a company, the financial health of a company, and uh, share price performance, which became really, really interesting. We were selling Dad's credit tool to credit departments and lending institutions, but the decision-making process was incredibly slow. And because of this correlation, we found that could actually not only deliver good, strong performance in a, in a share portfolio, but it also allowed individuals to qualify recommendations from third parties. Is it a healthy company or isn't? You know, just don't blindly follow a third party tip. And because of this interest and this fascination that was created from this correlation, we thought maybe we've got a tool here 
that could actually assist the mum and dad investor or the retail investor, the, the dedicated DIY investor, to make more informed, confident decisions in the management of their portfolios and qualify third-party advice. So that's really where it came from. And because we were passionate investors themselves, I joined Dad Self-Managed Super Fund back there as, a, as another trustee and a member and so it became this desire to help the mum and dad investor as opposed to following the credit path. And that's therefore that became our, our chosen commercial path and, and that was back in, in the mid-90s. And uh, obviously today we've, we've grown to where we've grown to. I'm curious, what did the initial business look like? Was it a subscription or can you just set the scene for what it was then? Yeah, we launched Doc Doctor in, in 1996 and then it was very much delivered on five and a quarter floppy disks. The very original was the uh, was the, was the larger floppy disk, but yeah, originally it was the five and a, five and a quarter. So that was very much a monthly send out of a, of a floppy disk to members, always subscription-based. That was a great decision we made early, Owen, was, was to make it a subscription-based service. So you got that recurring revenue, of course. So that was terrific. And if we could build that dependability and the, the trust with our members and have a really strong retention rate of those members, that recurring revenue allowed for you know a sustainable model through challenging economic environments. So yeah, it worked out to be really good. But obviously the early floppy then morphed into CD-ROM. So then it still was a monthly distribution of CD-ROM. And then in the early, early 2000s, dial-up internet services became available so we could actually start to explore distributing our the updates to the software and the data electronically over telephone lines. And, and then, of course, today it's fully web-based. So I haven't heard the story in this granularity before. It's actually, when you think about that and how innovative that is, going like and transitioning so quickly with the medium as well like adapting to dial up which at the time for those of us young enough to remember (laughs) wasn't very fast so to adapt to the new medium and to have see the business evolve and thrive over such a long time is really interesting but you're in a unique position in Australian funds management but also in the kind of what we typically class as like newsletter subscription side you straddle both of those today. You still have a business that expands from beyond just funds management and goes back into subscriptions and vice versa. And I imagine a lot of your users of the subscription become fund investors and those types of things. But it's often talked about in the media or elsewhere that there are certain advantages afforded to people on either side of the fence. So people that are self-directed investors always wonder, does the professional have some sort of advantage that I don't know about? And then they professionals that I speak to often think, well, it'd just be easier if I was an individual investor and this is all my own money and I was just managing my own money. So I'm curious if we can just take them one at a time, what you perceive to be the advantages, say for your members who use Stock Doctor for their own portfolios, what kind of advantages are afforded to individual investors? And then maybe we'll look at the other side too, the professional investor. Mm, Well, the the individual investor, they've chosen to be true self-directed, haven't they? They're a true DIY investor. So They've chosen to do that, so they're they're self-sufficient. So with self-sufficiency comes the importance of choosing the right provider relative to what you need to do yourself. So I suppose, firstly, they've got the ability to choose. They've got that, they've got the element of control. So choice, control, they relative to their style. So they're not relying on, on a third party to direct them. With that, 
and their smaller portfolio size comes the ability then to invest in stocks that um, that are a lot smaller than than the perhaps the, indiv- uh, the institutional type investor mm-hmm. will be restricted to relative to the size of their portfolio. So DIY investor is very nimble. Um, they've got this opportunity to choose and that choice extends well below what the institutional investor can select from. And we all know if you find that high quality, growing, dynamic, small cap stock and you've got a couple of those in the portfolio, we know the alpha that those types of stocks can produce um, in regard to boosting the performance of one's portfolio. So I suppose, yeah, the DIY investor's got the ability, it's the number one thing, is to identify those those small fish and um, and watch them grow up. And, but also the ability to change quickly because they don't they don't always grow or they, they may meet, reach maturity quickly or they may be taken over. So it gives them the ability to then fish again, fish again where and constantly fish. They've constantly got that line in the water trying to find that next great smaller cap opportunity. How about then, okay, so let's take the other side of the table, which is the professional investor, so fund managers like yourselves, right? What are the, some of the advantages afforded over there? Yeah, well, we've got access to obviously a lot of research. We've got a suite of brokers who we use who have got really strong research departments, often global entities. So we can tap into some very, very rich and deep research that helps us make informed decisions on companies. We get access to obviously CEO briefings, investor briefings that unfortunately the retail investor don't because they don't push enough business through them to warrant um, that type of access. Corporate actions, we obviously get presented with a lot of opportunities to participate in in certain corporate actions, capital raisings and the like. So they're the benefits of the institutional side of things. And yeah, our mem- as you said before too, Owen, our members, our stock doctor members often migrate into our fund business because they may, may reach a stage of life where, where they haven't got the time, desire or inclination to do it themselves anymore. That's sometimes at the start of the journey too, the time the time issue. And they know that we follow our same methodology. So in the funds, we follow exactly the same methodology as we do in Stock Doctor. It's just that we do have access to that deeper level of research and resources. We've actually just, I just realised, we've talked around this a bit, but can you just describe at a high level what Stock Doctor actually does? Like what is the service that it delivers? Because I think my follow-up question would be, how do they use it? for their advantage as an individual investor? Yeah, well, Stock Doctor, with the core competency of Stock Doctor is the fact that we we analyse financial accounts, the, the accounts that companies in Australia are required to release twice a year on an interim and annual basis. And we do that incredibly quickly. So we do all of the things that a lot of DIY investors or non-accountants and or non-economists really don't enjoy doing or haven't got the time to do it as quickly as what needs to be done in order to make informed and, and dynamic decisions. And that is the analysis of financial accounts, the analysis of the balance sheet, the profit and loss statement, the cash flow statement. Do that really quickly with real rigor and a methodology that stood the test of time. We constantly improve, constantly testing environment in the business. So that's that's and that's got to be the most important piece of due diligence a DIY investor does is actually understand the true fundamental quality or the financial health of the business. That's our core competency. And that's all based on my father's original PhD work that, as I said a moment ago, is constantly evolving. So that's our core competency. But financial health is just one component. It's a massive screening component where you go from, in Australia, 2,000 listed companies, three quarters of the market are actually don't pass our health test. So then you're down to the 500 that are healthy. From those 500 doesn't mean they're investable. 
we then apply in Stock Doctor other metrics. So other metrics for to identify true growth companies, and they're using traditional measurements with customized factors and criteria applied to traditional type growth metrics, being return on equity, net profit margins, earnings per share growth, free cash flow measurements, all of the things that we've correlated when combined with financial health should lead to a positive outcome for investors. So we apply those other growth metrics or income metrics, sustainability, dividend yield, yield above average market conditions, sustainability of dividends measured on, on cash flow requirements. So they're under a, a rule environment that's easy to interpret. So all of a sudden we've weeded down this, the other power of stock talk to do it so quickly is to weed down from now the 500 to about the 70 or 80 stocks that meet our financial health metrics and or growth and income metrics. And we flag those stocks of star stocks. All right, so you've got your star stocks that we believe are highly investable, high quality, and meet either a growth investor's requirements or an income investor's requirements. But they pass our golden rules one, two, and three. Then it's down to the individual to identify right out what other metrics are really important. That's when we step into things like if you're a trend-sensitive investor, what are some momentum indicators that are really important that are highly correlated with those other factors that I've just mentioned that lead to positive outcomes. If you're trend sensitive, we've got a couple of just simple stop loss criteria in there under another golden rule. Then you step through to valuation golden rules. Is it a high quality company and is it trading at a discount to its valuation? Therefore, that represents great opportunity. Doesn't mean you don't have to pay a premium for quality sometimes. And then we get into other things like liquidity. Is there enough traded in the stock every single day to warrant my exposure so I can get in and get out? And then we go through to what does a company do? Once all of those other metrics that I've just mentioned add up, then what does the actual company do? Does it align with my ethical and moral reasons why I'm really happy to consider the stock further? What's the remuneration of management? Does that align with shareholder outcomes in the past? And have they got skin in the game? Is the founder effect still there? So I've just quickly gone through all of the things that we've identified as being really high correlating factors to really positive outcomes over the long term for an investor and factors that also must align with the individual investor to make sure that they're building a portfolio of ideally 15-odd stocks that should lead to, again, that long-term positive outcome. But then Stock Doctor goes a lot further than that too. It's got a really powerful portfolio management system in place too for portfolio management, fully tax aware. It's got a full charting tool for those charters out there who love to chart, not necessarily in my wheelhouse, but it's there for those that like to apply some charting techniques, full alerts, full watch lists. It's a fully blown platform to allow DIY investors to be in total control of their investments and yeah, it's evolved a lot over the last 30 odd years, Owen, and we've got a long way to go yet. So the funds, do they replicate what happens inside Stock Doctor? Uh, no, it's the other way around. Stock Doctor determines what happens in the funds. So we invest, for example, our Lincoln Australian Growth Fund, it invests in a universe of liquid. Liquid is sufficient trade in the stock every day to warrant our, our exposure in the Lincoln Australian Growth Fund of Stock Doctor Star Growth Stocks. So that's a strong discipline. So we want to mirror the methodology, but we just can't invest in all of the star growth stocks because some of them are just too small. Again, the power to the DIY investor or the stock doctor member because they can invest in those stocks. Same with the star income stocks. Must be liquid portfolio in the Lincoln Australian Income Fund of liquid star income stocks. So we try to mirror exactly the same. So people are investing in our funds who believe 
in really the stock doctor methodology. So you obviously employ analysts as well. Does there become a qualitative overlay from the analysts or portfolio managers at a certain extent? Yeah, absolutely. So great question. So I believe our process is probably 85% quant because it's purely the financial data that's feeding in from numerous data suppliers. So we're a real data, we're a real data aggregator in that sense. So we get the data in, we analyze the data, we filter through the data to come up with our short list of stocks. That's pure quant. But at the end, we do have to check the data, make sure, so this is a qualitative overlay now, come in, check the data, but also understand the active risks. And the only way to understand active risks, whether they're geopolitical, have a look at the directors selling. There's a number of active risks, uh, what rising interest rate environments might have on the individual stock. So yeah, that's the qualitative overlay that is probably around 15% of that, of the total process, but done right at the end before we give the stock the tick of approval. I've got one deeper question, which is that in terms of the analyst checking the quant-based models, I would imagine with some data that's like particularly smaller companies it's not as good as you would want it to be all the time. And so you have those analysts that can check some things and whatever. And so more so like the false positives or false negatives. I guess the question is like, do you ever step outside of what the stock doctor methodology suggests? No, no, no we don't. We've got, because we test, we've, we've tested the, we can create the algorithms based on, you know, a high correlation between the factors that we end up choosing from hundreds and hundreds of different factors and combinations of factors. And they're just financial ratios I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. We've tested those to have it, that high correlation in the past. They've worked to produce positive outcomes and we believe they'll work into the future with this constant retraining of those algorithms to make sure the algorithms that we use can be applied in, for example, in a rising interest rate environment. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly changing, but no, we won't deviate from the algorithm, especially financial health. There's no way known we'll ever consider a stock that fails golden rule number one, and that's our financial health metric. Any stock that might be in distress at the moment, we still make available in Stock Doctor. It's there still to be viewed and some of our members might decide to have a specky play in it because they believe in it. They believe it's a turnaround story. And some of our, met- later, our metrics under Golden Rule 2 and 3 might show early signs of recovery, but we won't ever flag them as a star stock or invest in them if their financial health isn't of a satisfactory nature. How many stocks do you typically end up with in the portfolios? Yeah, we've got at the moment the full universe of star stocks is around 80 so our Lincoln Australian Growth Fund's got about 35 in it at the moment, and they're similar for the Lincoln Australian Income Fund. So they're portfolios that are certainly not concentrated, and we believe a portfolio of anywhere up to 60 is still quite manageable. It hasn't got too many stocks in it where it starts to dilute the performance overall. So, yeah, around between 35 and 50 at any one time in our star stock list and also in our managed funds. But... Our clients, our Stock Doctor members, have got the ability to select subsets, the best performing or the best, the ones with the best metrics of those star stock lists. And we really encourage investors not to have a portfolio of any less than 15 stocks because that's where it does start to become a little bit over-concentrated. Aside from growth and income, are there any style biases that come through or just, like, I imagine the system kind of flags those pretty quick? There's the ability in, in Stock Doctor to go outside of our star stock universe and run filters on on different criteria. And yeah, there's some wonderful, as I said, turnaround opportunities before where they're not yet star stocks, but 
but they do, they're on their way. They're financially healthy and early signs of recovery. So they're there, or there might be some stocks that don't, again, don't meet our liquidity requirement, even for a star stock. And we need to have them probably around $200,000 traded every day in order to meet even our, what we believe is a DIY investor's liquidity requirement. We've got 4,000 members. So they're 4,000 members trying to all get into a new star stock every day at once. That's going to cause serious strain on liquidity. So you could actually fish outside of our star stocks and say, no, I've got. A, I want an exposure to a smaller cap that might be a fifty thousand dollars traded every day in a market cap of twenty mil. That's getting pretty small, but want them to be still financially healthy. So you've got the ability to fish outside. Yeah. You mentioned like your members there in chatting to the team before. I know that the retention rate is very high amongst your members, which is very unique. So for folks that don't know, like anything above fifty percent for subscription investment newsletters is considered really good and yours is far and away above that. Why do you think, what is it about Stock Doctor that keeps people coming back to it? Like say versus other subscriptions. It's a bit of a no-brainer for me, Owen. It's um, obviously the platform's work. It's really good and really proud of the way we've delivered and built a system based on not only what we know works but what our clients need. So we, we get feedback from them and we, we deliver based. We don't want to create a noisy platform at all, but we deliver on things that the population wants. So we deliver for our member. And I think that then extends into the most, well, two most important criteria. One, you've got to deliver good long-term performance results. If you're not adding value in regard to creating wealth from the share market in the stocks that you recommend, then you're not going to last long. So I think our long-term performance is certainly built a level of trust amongst our members, which is, again, important. But it's our clients' intricity to own, which is a no-brainer. We do pour a lot of genuine effort into servicing our customer and being there for them. And that client's intricity, that genuine love for the customer is there. And they feed off that. And I think that's the difference because we believe in what we do. They believe in what we do. We deliver the technology to allow them to do what they do and we, we're just there for them with this, with this genuine commitment. I think all of that just combined leads to that retention rate that I wasn't, I wasn't ever aware of an industry benchmark, so we just go about our stuff and appreciate the fact that it is around that 85%, so all we have to do is cover 15% attrition each year. Yeah, so it makes me even prouder to know that those basic common sense principles of delivering for the customer and being there for the customer obviously leads to the, this nice outcome. Absolutely. Given that you computerise the quantitative models so early, I'm curious how you think about maintaining that competitive edge in the quantitative space while also we've got explosion of these large language models and all of these things that have been popularised in recent times around like on huge data sets and how you think about that edge and the ability to do what you do, basically. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, we've been around a long time now, obviously, and we've seen a lot of competitors come and go and every piece of tech's a new piece of tech. So we've, we've seen that, you touched on it too, that we are probably the original fintech in our space. So that's nice to know. But yeah, it's moving fast now, isn't it? Data analytics, statistical analysis, it's, it's moving fast. And that's, again, that's our core. That's what we do. We're a small business sitting here in Collins Street, Melbourne, but that's core to what we do. And, you know, I've got data scientists employed in the business. We've got our analysts. I've got a dev team. And we believe we're into machine learning too. We're AI. You know, data analytics is all about and the formulation of, of factors 
and identifying the Horace correlating factors, it's all pattern recognition. So we're there anyway. It's about us constantly improving now to allow ourselves to remain ahead of that game in regard to the investing landscape to identify those factors that keep on allowing us to perform, pick the right stocks and perform really well. So we're there. It's a really, really fast-moving fast moving environment and I'm not sure where it'll be in five years but, again, as I said before, every piece of tech's a new piece of tech. We've just got to keep innovating and it's great fun. But, yeah, it's uh, you've got to maintain that competitive advantage somehow and that generally is through, again, back, dialing back to that performance, delivering on performance, delivering a great platform, but still remaining incredibly client-centric. I've got one uh, question which is more philosophical, which is like in the last few years, we've had like with the lead up to COVID, then we had a, like a bit of a flash crash during COVID, then a massive bull market out of that very short period of time, and then a crash again and heaps of volatility last year. I'm curious uh, what learnings you may have had. Obviously, you've been in the game for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And you've seen these things come and go and everyone's a new one, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme kind of thing. What are some of the learnings you've taken out of the last couple of years? Yeah, last couple of years. I mean, it's been long, hasn't it? In my investing journey, I've never experienced. This is new. This is new in regard to the length of time. But um, it's been tough. It's been tough. Only the large caps, the large caps, the very large caps, they're the only guys that have done well and if you're in a portfolio that's weighted to large caps, yeah, you've probably done, you've done a lot better than you have with growth-orientated or small to mid-cap investing styles. Mm-hmm. And so this has been a really tough period, but it's been it's only because of the turmoil of what we've gone through and now we're entering into, for the very first time in a long, long time, a rising interest rate environment. So it's very, very different. So I'm now at a stage where we're constantly innovating, we're constantly looking at ways and we're being very, very tactical in the management of our portfolios in regard to what we expect to occur next in regard to the influence of rising interest rates or then a plateauing of interest rates and then perhaps a decline in interest rates and looming recession, what sort of impact that's going to have on our total business model and the performance of our portfolios and our stocks over the ensuing period. So what I've learned is that um, you need to be incredibly resilient. You need to manage the business really, really carefully because business is harder to find now, especially with interest rates where they are. People are sort of saying, well, while things are tough, while things are uncertain, while well, there's a bit of fear out there, better just parking the money in a bit of cash and earning 5% again. That's a totally new mindset to where we've been for so long. So business is harder. But we've just got to now look at ways to constantly evolve and improve and be very tactical for when the bulls start to run again. And they will. It's a cycle. It's a big cycle. It's a long cycle. And it'll shift. It'll shift back in our favour. And uh, we've just got to be ready to go then, but also protect the portfolio and come up with strategies to protect our portfolios and, and money by increased cash positions ready for a little bit more volatility that we expect but then move when those interest rates and, and the risk of recession starts to abate. Do you ever – so this comes circles back to like the construction of the stock-doctor process and the, the, the methodology that's followed with the funds is do you ever make forecasts or have some type of strategy for using those top-down inputs? So things like interest rates, inflation, currencies, those types of things? Yeah, good question again. Traditionally, we've been very much bottom-up purely bottom-up, company level, investing 
quality of the company and, and see how we go. And those models have been tested without the benefit of a rising interest rate environment. So now we've got a rising interest rate environment. We can now start to take, and I don't want to bombard it with a heap of noisy macro factors. One of my mantras has always been, or my mottos has always been to block out the macroeconomic noise because we are that bottom up stock picker. But now we're wanting to just have a look at what the effect of perhaps changing unemployment rates and also this higher inflationary environment, what impact that's going to start to have on some companies who are being artificially supported through stimulus and low interest rate environment and the like. And we're seeing bankruptcies and, and insolvencies starting to increase now. Those that are still surviving, what effect are some of those high-level macro factors going to have? So we'll incorporate that now into our testing environment to see if some of the factors are affected and hence the construction of our portfolios and selection of star stocks may be affected. And by the way, for anyone listening and wants to learn more, there's obviously links in the show notes to the Stock Doctor website and you can find out more about that there as well as the funds. I'm curious, one of the things that tends to happen, so we tend to have on the show, we tend to have folks that are quite qualitative heavy and driven that way and some people that are quantitatively driven that way and that's what makes a market, right? But one of the areas where we kind of all are seemingly joined at the hip in some way or shape or form is valuation. So I'm curious how you as a business, you as an individual think about valuation but more specifically where you think investors go wrong. Mm, yeah. Valuation, It's a, what we've, got, we've got eight golden rules, nine really, but the ninth golden rule is follow the previous eight. And valuation sits at golden rule five. Star stocks are selected based on our first three golden rules, financial health growth metrics and also income metrics factors. So that's golden rules one, two, and three. So it sits outside of our star stock selection, but must be considered as part of the investment process. So the way I think about valuation, I'm quality first, quality, financial health, quality growth, quality income. So I'm all about quality. Surely any asset we select should be based on quality. And then are you, do you have to pay a, a premium for that quality? Sometimes you do. You know, high-quality businesses, high-quality assets, whether it be a piece of art, whether it be property, whether it be a business or the, whether it be a stock, sometimes a high-quality businesses, you've got to pay a premium for that quality, which might be a really high PE or it might be a discounted cash flow model or whatever it is. It might be... So I'm prepared to pay a premium for quality. And where I use valuation and get excited about the use of valuation is when a high-quality business is trading at a discount to its valuation. I see that as a bargain. To answer the latter part of your question around where do investors go wrong is by putting valuation as their number one stock selection criteria. Ignore quality and just go in because they're trading at a discount. I mean, that's dangerous. They might be trading at a discount for a very good reason. And to not assess quality ahead of valuation, I think, is incredibly dangerous. And I know there's there's a lot of industry participants who base the ins and outs of their recommendations purely on value. Dangerous. You mentioned before the investment process and how that filters down to 500 and then, you know, there's a bit more stringent uh, criteria from then on. And you arrive at around about 30, 40 stocks. I'm curious, because the Australian market, therefore, is probably not as deep as other markets, what does the typical kind of like holding period turn out to be for the funds? Yeah, the star stock life for a star growth stock is generally around 12 months. So to meet, and we like to think that the growth criteria and the quality criteria that we're looking for, they're elite businesses. 
but the criteria is so high, high, like return on equity might be we're looking for 20% return on equity. We're looking for 10% net profit margins. Unsustainable stuff over the long term as the business matures. So you're going to get a little, little bit of churn in regard to that around 12 months. Some are shorter, some are a bit longer. I mean, stocks like REA and Cochlear and CSL, they've been star stocks in and out a little bit over time, but generally they've been there for 20-odd years. And But star income stocks, they're generally longer because we're looking, they're more mature businesses. We're just looking at sustainable yield. So they could be there for years as a star income stock. So growth a little shorter than income. Well, I've got one final question for you, which is the hardest one, I think, of all the questions that I typically ask guests, which is um, what's one thing that one thing about finance or investing that few others would agree with you on. Hmm. And I think I just, I came pre-prepared. Obviously, you you flick through some questions in the last 24 hours. So I came a little pre-prepared and I think I just answered it before in regard to valuation. I think I'm not downplaying valuation, but I don't rank it anywhere near as highly as most. And I think most because, you know, Buffett style is quality and value, but everyone seems to hook onto the value because that's the thing that's able to be measured easily or, or calculated easier is, is a valuation metric as opposed to how do I measure quality? So everyone's sort of hooked on their – so I don't agree. I, I think quality must come first where I think a lot probably want to run a valuation model before they'll assess quality because it's perhaps easier. The other thing, and golly, I hope I don't get myself into trouble for this one – is probably relates to the easiness of doing this too and instead of having to analyse financial accounts is technical analysis. Technical analysis can play a role. I'm not here to can it at all. But to rely purely on a chart to make an informed decision and manage portfolios around purely charting, I think it's dangerous again. It's, you know, surely quality has to come first before you you look too heavily into a chart. But because it's probably easy and it looks great and it's what everyone seems to talk about, then there's a lot of literature out there and education material on charting perhaps and fundamentals isn't so exciting and attractive. Perhaps that's why that occurs. But again, it's dangerous. I think value and charting ahead of measurement of quality probably won't lead to a, a positive outcome over the long term. Well, that was actually a really good answer. I really do appreciate you saying that. So, which is just to say thank you. So, well, Tim, I think that's a it's a really fitting way to end the show. And uh, there's heaps more information on the Stock Doctor website. Again, you'll find a link in the show notes, and uh, you can find out more about the funds and everything. So, thanks for taking some time to come and share your wisdom over decades, harnessed over decades, with the community today. It's been a pleasure, Owen. Really, I love sharing the story. We are survivors in what we do. And um, yeah, thank you for inviting me and congratulations to you too on your dedication to educating, especially um, the investment community because yeah, they need generally a lot of helping hand. Cheers, mate. Appreciate it. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, 
designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.